0: Hi everyone and welcome to this 11th Geopolitical Economy Hour, the fortnightly show on the political and geopolitical economy of our times. I'm Radhika Desai and today we are going to be joined by Michael Roberts. Most of you will know Michael as one of the most acute commentators on the state of the world economy. He has experience working in the financial sector and has also been a labor activist so he brings a very unique combination of perspectives on his work and provides us with a with a very informative perspective on the unravelling of the capitalist world economy in recent decades and today he is here with us to discuss the debt ceiling drama that has unfolded in washington in recent weeks welcome michael well it's
1: good to be here Radika. and i must say that i have enjoyed many of the economy hours up to now while i've been watching so it's a, a real privilege to have an opportunity to discuss with you The debt ceiling and debt in general i suppose
0: well great michael and i hope this is only the first of many appearances by you on this so on this show so um let's let's dive into this so Mm. uh, as far as the debt ceiling is concerned there has been a a pattern which has become a classic of sorts. With just days to go before the day that the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the U.S. would run out of cash to meet its obligations, President Biden and House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy reached a bipartisan deal, which is going to permit the government to keep borrowing in return for certain cuts in spending, social spending in particular, that the Republicans insisted on. The catastrophic disaster predicted by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in the weeks leading up to the negotiations and the deadline was again narrowly averted. But as more and more commentary is recognising other more slow-moving sorts of disasters that will affect the US political system, fiscal health, the economy, the financial system, and the dollar system have not been averted. If anything, it seems as though the deal is simply setting the stage for all these different sorts of crises to accumulate and and and, and, uh, and to erupt in in in, in later at a later stage. So we propose to uncover these unresolved issues in a broader discussion that will range over some very key questions. So first of all, what is the debt deal? Is it even re- is the debt ceiling even real? Uh, what's in the deal that McCarthy and Biden came up with? Is it good for US society, economy, politics, and of course, the rest of the world? Um, thirdly, um, now that the US government can borrow more, are its fiscal woes over? Uh, fourthly, how does this de- uh, Im- impact on the ability of the Federal Reserve to do its job? What about the economy? Sixthly, what about the U.S. financial system? And finally, given the close relation that has always been insisted on between the U.S. fiscal and current account deficits and, um, and the functioning of the dollar system, how does the debt ceiling deal reached? affect the dollar system so these are some of the questions we hope to cover in what I hope what we hope will be a fairly free-ranging conversation so Michael why don't you just start us off with your overall thoughts on what the debt ceiling is whether you agree with some people who say that it's not really an actual constraint at all
1: well the debt ceiling is almost peculiar to the United States uh, in the constitutional legislation there are one or two other countries that uh, have a debt ceiling The one I can think of is Denmark. Uh, The idea is that uh, there's a certain limit on how much a government uh, can run up in debt. And once that ceiling's reached, then there has to be an agreement to extend it. And so the idea, apparent proposed idea, is this will control public spending and control debt getting out of hand in the public sector. Uh, Of course, this is just nonsense. It, It doesn't apply at all. Every time the debt ceiling has been reached, it's been expanded. And I think at least nearly 80 times have we had a debt ceiling which is then expanded accordingly by agreement of Congress. Only a few occasions in the US has there actually been an attempt to block uh, and just to hold the debt ceiling and to force reductions in spending uh, by the incumbent government. In just about every case, it's a Democrat uh, administration that looks to spend. And Republican administration trying to republican opposition trying to use this debt ceiling as a way of squeezing out concessions and then what are those concessions which you can discuss them later but uh, it's really a political football and not really anything to do with trying to control the debt. In the case of the Danish debt ceiling by the way, the debt ceiling is about three times higher than the Danish uh, debt to GDP so it never gets there. It's only the U.S. which has this uh, weird and wonderful uh, uh, pr- plan in which they say claim will control debt, but it doesn't control debt in any way. Government debt to GDP, or just government debt in general in the U.S., has been ex- increasing every year without it, uh, uh, any real downturn at all in the overall debt, and if, in terms of debt to GDP, that's a ratio that we can look at uh, as a measure of whether it's exceeding the growth in the economy, that's been rising uh, dramatically anyway. So the ceiling is having no effect in controlling uh, debt to GDP or debt in general if if that is what you want to do. And the question we could discuss is, should government debt be controlled in this way at at all? Uh, What is the purpose of government borrowing? And is it playing a useful role? Uh, So what we have here is a completely ridiculous and preposterous measure really designed... For political fight, infighting within Congress,
0: I mean, certainly, you know, just just to you know, you 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 rightly pointed out that uh, the debt ceiling has been lifted by my calculation seventy-nine times, counting right. the last one, since nineteen seventeen. So apparently, what has happened is that up until that time. Um, U.S. spending and borrowing were not really very great. But once the war started and the government started to spend more, then there was a need for continuing to authorize new borrowing. So the the original idea behind the debt ceiling was not at all actually a constraint so much as an enabling feature that you can borrow up up to this limit was the idea. But of Mm. course, over time, what has happened is it has become a political football. So apparently, since 1976, when it first, you know, the issue of, a spending etc first began to be, be made a political issue by the right wing as you rightly pointed out there have been 22 government shutdowns so this is really the interesting thing and i also wanted to say that you know you're absolutely right to say that uh the debt ceiling has actually done nothing to control government debt the uh, u.s debt has continued to rise and it has risen particularly high Uh, In the last couple of uh, uh, last few years, uh, since the pandemic in particular. But what these, uh, what has happened is that the particular way in which the uh, debt ceiling has been politicized by uh, the Republicans in particular, what this has done is it has uh, uh, controlled the reasons why the debt goes up. So the debt has gone up, not because the government is profligate in spending on social security or or anything like that. U.S. social spending is among the meanest Mm -hmm. uh, in the overall OECD country uh, league tables. So what this has done is it has essentially um, created a situation in which U.S. debt has continued to go up, but it has gone up in order to do certain specific things number one first and foremost to cut taxes on the rich secondly to keep spending on defense and so on. And thirdly, of course, to give generously, to uh, to, to essentially turn the U.S. state into a welfare state for corporations, essentially, yeah. to, to give big subsidies to, to, to these. But, you know, the other question that also uh, emerges is, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that a number of people who are on the left of the Democratic Party and more generally in the left of the political spectrum in the United States have actually pointed out that there are a number of reasons why this drama, the is regularly played out uh, in washington uh, every time the republicans want to essentially uh, create a ruckus around the debt ceiling they get to do so but the democrats play along and this is the really shocking thing is that you know the as far as the public is concerned most commentary would lead them to believe that president biden is training every nerve to increase social spending and he's only being stopped by the republicans but in reality There are at least three points that one may make, which show that actually the Biden administration is really uh, 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 kind of looking, essentially looking for a way to have cuts in social spending, but then blame it on the Republicans. So. The first point is that many people have pointed out that the US 14th Amendment, which basically says that US obligations of uh, spending uh, a debt payment, etc., will be sacrosanct. They will not be challenged by anybody. This simply means that you don't need to raise the debt ceiling, the government can continue to borrow in order to finance its spending without any problems. The second is that according to at least one leading expert, uh, maybe there are actually more, uh, but Cornell University Professor Robert Hockett has argued in a number of writings that, um, uh, that in fact, the budget itself, once it is passed by Congress, if the budget uh, has a shortfall of uh, uh, spending uh, over revenues, then uh, essentially there will be borrowing, and the passage of the budget itself authorizes the government to spend. So there is no need for a debt ceiling. Um, and, and but nevertheless, the Biden, the Democrats have never taken up these legal points. And then finally, Tom Ferguson, the very well-known writer who has uh, really done the most uh, uh, yeoman's work on following the following the money in the American political system, what he's pointed out is that Biden could have easily raised the debt ceiling when the Democrats controlled both uh, ho- both houses of Congress, but deliberately chose not to. And why is that? And Ferguson's answer is very simple. Biden needs to raise money. And this time around, he's going to need to raise a lot of money in order to overcome his unpopularity to try to become president. And if he's going to collect this kind of money, he's going to have to go to big corporations and they don't—they want essentially what the Republicans want. So Biden has found a way of conceding to the Republicans in this fashion.
1: The other thing is that he's also conceded that this debt ceiling is going to come back and haunt uh, us again it's only been put off till 2025 and we know why it's been put off to 2025 so that it doesn't arise this side of the next uh, presidential election so it's not an it's that was part of the deal in a way that biden achieved with the republican opposition that he avoided after making considerable concessions which we'll uh, consider in a moment uh in in, he managed to uh, push this down the road so that it's after the election, but it's going to come back again. Whoever is in administration in uh, 2025, obviously, if it's a Republican administration, I think we'll be surprised to see that debt ceiling is an issue. But if Biden is re-elected, assuming he's going to be the candidate, then it's going to come right back again. And further pressure will be put on by the Republican opposition to reduce the spending in very key areas, which have already been conceded by Biden in the debt ceiling agreement and we we should our viewers should really know exactly just what did happen uh during that uh, agreement uh to realize the way in which the biden uh, administration has gone backwards on its original commitments uh, to meet the needs of the population
0: Well, this is, you know, in fact, as you were talking, I suddenly realized that actually I have not come across any of these debt ceiling standoffs in which the it's the Democrats who say we are not going to allow you to increase the uh, limit on uh, on borrowing unless you agree to spend more on social spending. We've never Mm -hmm. seen that. Mm -hmm. This is the interesting thing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's amazing. So, Michael, you've done a lot of work on examining this debt ceiling deal. Yeah. So why don't you start us off let's let's discuss the question of what's in this deal is it good for yeah. the us
1: uh, in what ways etc yeah well i think the, the thing to remember the viewers should remember that the budget has basically been as it were ring fenced so there's been no uh, cuts uh, asked for by the republicans and agreed by the democrats in military spending at all uh, then there is no cuts in social entitlement because that requires legislation because they're entitlements so that the bulk of Medicare and the bulk of Social Security remains. So that basically, the only bit that can be reduced is what is called discretionary spending, which is all the things of services and education, transport and other things that the federal government's supposed to provide, and the employees and services that they provide uh, for the population. That's the area that's being slashed in the agreement. And I think we have a graph. I'd just like to show you that first graph that I presented. Uh, I've brought forward for the discussion, you can see here now in the graph, the blue, big blue block is the military spending, the official military spending, which is about $800 billion a year, which uh, Biden plans to spend. And on the purple side, you can see all the, what is called the non-defense discretionary spending. But actually, the military spending is even higher than that, because if you look in the purple bit, and the top right, deft part of the purple bit, you can see veterans spending on veterans, so that's really part of defence spending. And all the other blocks in there actually have uh, quite a lot of military spending in them as well, you would you believe, in all different areas. And really, the total uh, spending that Biden is now committed to on the military front in arms and other defence of the realm, if you want, uh, is $1 trillion a year, $1 trillion a year with no exemptions to cut that back. So all those purple bits... Which are now down to about five or six hundred billion are going to be reduced not only in real terms over the next few years but also in cash terms. So it's even a bigger fall. So this 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 budget concession, things like, for example, uh, to get food stamps at work if your income is so low in the U.S. you get food stamps, but now uh, you will not be able to get those until you've reached the age of 54. It used to be 50. So it means that. Uh, now it's they've extended the uh, range of age before you can get a get a food stamp help and various other measures like that for uh, cutbacks in all kinds of areas on the purple side, which uh, Biden has agreed to. Yes, there's further spending going ahead uh, because the Biden plan is to increase uh, spending in in green investment and in infrastructure, but it, it will be at the expense of all other areas of basic services which the federal government uh, provides. So uh, with one hand you get a little more and the other hand you get taken away but one area is not going to be touched and that's armed spending.
0: Yeah, this is really interesting and it seems to me that uh, this deal has essentially done nothing to uh, uh, to change the general uh, an orientation towards fiscal irresponsibility of a right-wing sort—that That is to say you essentially have unfunded tax cuts and you have uh, lots of military spending. And then you, if you cut anything, you are only going to cut uh, a spending that's going to go to uh, a, a, some kind of broader social causes. And of course, this so- these sorts of cuts, uh, they are relatively minor for now, but they they will have a slowing effect on the economy. There's no doubt about it. And this comes at a time when the US economy already faces a lot of challenges. Mm. Challenges which I also have to say that, you know, the general trend towards towards right-wing forms of fiscal irresponsibility mean that despite the fact that there has been much fanfare around the post-pandemic spending programs and then more recently the Inflation Reduction Act. And though there has been a substantial amount of spending promised, one wonders whether it's anywhere near enough to really. Uh, revive the U.S. economy productively and and actually deal with the real causes why core inflation remains very high, which is that the productive structure of the U.S. economy remains very weak. So overall, you know, in terms of what's in this deal, it's actually quite disappointing, even though most of the press seems to congratulate Biden and McCarthy. You know, this Biden has has won this and he has shown that he's Old skills at congressional negotiations are intact, and McCarthy has proved that he can be a bipartisan person, etc. etc. The poor fellow apparently is not going to have going to get to keep his job because the most Republicans are not interested in bipartisanship at the moment. But really, if you think about it, the whole question of who wins and who loses from this deal is really not about whether Biden wins or McCarthy wins or Democrats win or Republicans win. It's really about whether uh, is, is really about about the fact that the u.s economy and the u.s people have lost another opportunity to try to do something about
1: their weakening economy increasing inequality etc etc well i would add a couple of things there vidika one of the things that's missing from uh, even the budget was a reversal of the trump tax cuts that were made during that administration which were huge the huge corporate t- uh, tax cuts and also for higher income groups all that has been preserved. there has been no reversal there. So the inequality of income uh, that it's already expanded dramatically in the US over the last 25 years and was accelerated under Trump uh, is, is, is not being reversed by the Biden administration. So on tax, they're doing that. If you look at the infrastructure spending a budget, it sounds great, but actually it works out at something like half a percent of GDP over the rest of this decade. Now, that sounds... Uh, to me way short of the requirements that are needed to uh, to move us towards a green environmental uh, structure for the uh, industries of transport and energy and so on which are so vital for us to sort out by the end of this decade because as we now know and as scientists are telling us that we are going over the tipping point of 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels on global temperature this decade almost certainly and if we go beyond that level, it's a tipping point, which means that it's irreversible damage to the planet in terms of droughts and floods and uh, uninhabitable areas of the of the continent. We're already seeing the level of fires and other things developing in Northern Europe and in North America as well. So uh, we know that something has got to be urgently done on this area. But even the programme that presented to supposedly move towards green investment in the US is way, way inadequate. And so the main structure, as you say, of the economy, of the rich controlling the vast majority of wealth, earning the most of the money, and the government unable to do or unwilling to do anything about uh, that uh, structure, and that remains. That hasn't uh, altered as a result of anything Biden has proposed and and is implementing, and it's uh, now actually been chipped away at uh, by the debt ceiling agreement
0: well this is it i mean you know just uh we, i just want to uh, respond to your very very important point i mean we're living in a time when this is going to be a, uh, 2023 could be the hottest year on record already mm-hmm. we've already had april and may showing unprecedented levels of heat so i i, I just a little climate interlude here because it seems to me that, uh, you know, uh, very often with the Biden administration taking office, everybody was told that, you know, well, now we will have see some movement on the climate agenda, et cetera, et cetera. But the more closely you look at what's happened, you really realize that essentially the strategy of even the Democrats in the United States, let alone the Republicans who don't even accept that there is a climate or there is anthropogenic, anthropogenic climate change, um, even the Democrats will only implement those aspects of some sort of climate change uh, 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 some sort of program to address climate change provided it makes lots of money for the big corporations ultimately this is the key to understanding it so that in reality this is not uh, 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 climate just is an issue uh, is an excuse to give more subsidies to big corporations and this is where i think we are going to face the biggest obstacles i mean this is Really, uh, content for another program, but I just wanted to to mention
1: yeah. that. But well, as you say, it's subsidies. The, the infrastructure program, the Biden is subsidies to big business to carry out green investment and tax exemptions. Actual direct government investment to do projects to build uh, environmental projects directly, but through government investment, hardly exists at all. Yeah. And so, and the other one of the other concessions in the debt ceiling was the agreement to go ahead with an important gas pipeline uh, in one of the uh, right-wing Democrat states. That was one of the agreements that was uh, reached. So actually, the expansion of fossil fuel investment has taken place as a result of the debt ceiling agreement.
0: And needless to say, the sanction strategy in the current... Proxy war on Ukraine is also, of course, uh, essentially putting the world on a, uh, 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 on a, on a path which increases its uh, uh, resource footprint and its climate footprint and so on. But anyway, what yes. a uh, whole Mil-
1: re- military activity and arms activity is the biggest carbon dioxide emitter in the world. It's the biggest uh, consumer and producer of carbon dioxide. So yeah. I'm afraid war is not only bad for people it's bad for the planet in general and
0: and and putting europe on a, a diet of american lng as opposed to russian gas is apparently many times more uh, contributes many times more to global warming than uh, 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 Russian gas, anyway, four <laughs> times more expensive too. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, yeah. I mean that's another story as well. What's wrong with the Europeans? But <laughs> let's um, let's maybe come back to this and, and go to our next question, which is yeah. okay. So now they've got a deal. The U.S. government is free to borrow more, at least for the next two years. Uh, so, given that, are its fiscal woes over? That is to say, are there no longer any Uh, problems. And what can we see? I mean, one thing that that certainly seems to be uh, uh, right at the top of this list uh, is that, of course, debt servicing is Mm. going to be, not only is the debt going to grow, but it is going to grow in an environment where uh, 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 the Federal Reserve is jacking up interest rates and markets are demanding that they they be jacked up even more. So debt servicing is going to constitute a bigger and bigger part of this. It's already at a uh, 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 1 trillion at low interest rates it's estimated to go up to half of government spending if debt continues to rise as expected and interest rates do not dip below historical averages so right now they're high maybe a little higher than historical average maybe they'll go down a bit but provided interest rates do not go back to the ridiculously low interest rates that we've had over most of the last two decades it's this is going to be the situation. So, in fact, Americans, the United
1: States fiscal wars are only going to increase, and this is only part of the story, right? It is. Well, one of the features, I mean, perhaps we'll deal with debt in general, apart from the public debt, which is important, but public debt uh, has shot up, as we discussed earlier, even before COVID. Why? Because during the period of uh, the 2010s, there was a massive bailout of the banks, Uh, by all the countries around the world. There was a slowdown in GDP, so growth wasn't delivered from this huge debt. So uh, the private sector disaster was placed into default into the public sector. They had to deal with it. So public sector debt rocketed from, say, on an average in the advanced capitalist economies of around 60% of GDP to close to 90% to 100% of GDP during the 2010s. It came down a little bit just before COVID, and then we had the pandemic slump, which we saw a massive increase in fiscal spending so that people didn't uh, starve because they were locked down and all the rest of it. Uh, so the result is that we saw, again, a big rise in uh, public debt globally, in most, just about every country of the world, up to about 95, 100% of GDP. So it's nearly double where it was at the beginning of uh, this century. And... As you say, the only reason that this has been not a a big problem for the budget up to now has been interest rates have been ridiculously low, if not zero in many countries, uh, in government bond prices and so on. uh, The interest on government bonds is right down low to levels really close to zero. And in terms of uh, central bank interest rate levels, they were actually negative in many countries for a period during the 2010s. Debt servicing hasn't been an issue. I used to see lots of the graphs from economists saying, oh, the debt's up, but debt servicing's down, so nothing to worry about. Well, all I can say is that that is dramatically changing, as you point out, in the last 18 months to two years. Interest rates have gone up in from the Federal Reserve from virtually zero to now 5% with predictions to go up to 55 That's the Fed's own prediction. And if it stays at that level with 100% of GDP debt, actually higher if you look at gross debt in the case of the US, then there's gonna be a dramatic increase in debt servicing costs. And that can only eat into uh, real productive use of government money. Uh, you will be like lots of emerging economies, so-called emerging economies, that have huge interest payments that they have to make on their public sector debt. Uh, the US will be, be becoming a, what I would call a global south Uh, public sector if that continues over the next five to ten years. I remember
0: many years ago when the uh, uh, 2008 crisis hit, we had invited Giovanni Arrighi, the very noted uh, world systems analyst, and Robert Brenner, the economic historian, to come and talk about what had happened. it was a big public meeting, and Giovanni Arrighi raised a, he made the, you know, he basically said the time has come for the United States to face its own structural adjustment, and there was an absolute uproar of applause when he <laughs> said that and you know it was it was you know he was not wrong to some extent these things did happen and today it seems to me that uh the ability of the united states to keep on borrowing and spending is now in in in, in a bigger you know it's it's in question to an even greater extent you know so at the moment for example uh first of all the the uh massive borrowing that is now expected so now the you know remember that for the first uh, several months of the year like five yeah. six months of the year the government has not been borrowing no and despite that you had a drop in the value of u.s treasuries yeah. which led to these banking collapses and so on because they had had too much of their assets were in the form of treasuries and these assets had lost value and blah blah and so on we know that whole story we've covered that in a different program but 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 so that was already happening now there's going to be, according to all accepted estimates, about eight hundred billion dollars of borrowing in the next four months and a trillion dollars of borrowing before the end of the year. All this debt issuance is going to put a put huge pressure on the market. The question is, you know, if the U.S. could not uh, already could not borrow without raising interest rates. Uh, uh, in the past, this is going to become an even bigger problem. So this is going to keep interest rates high. And what's more, all of this is happening when, in fact, there are deep structural reasons why the United States is going to keep needing to borrow more. Number one, it's an aging society. Aging societies are going to have to spend more. They're going to have to borrow more. Unless, of course, they, they subject the elderly to a level of neglect, which we have not yet seen in advanced capitalist societies. Number two... Uh, uh, there's going to be, uh, 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 you know, the, the, these these constraints on borrowing are going to also constrain government spending. And without very substantial government spending, you're not going to turn the U.S. economy around. And if you're not going to turn the U.S. economy around while also refusing to tax the really rich, your revenue side is going to remain very weak. which means It's a vicious know,
1: circle, really, exactly- Frederica. If you don't carry out government investment big time in order to raise the productivity of the economy in productive sectors, then growth will remain. I mean, the Fed and the government is predicting growth rates this year of maybe a half a percent and maybe one, but half a percent uh, minimum Uh, next year, much the same. And in fact, uh, the budget, Congressional Budget Office predicts that the average growth rate in the U.S. will be in real terms for the GDP, about 1.8%. I don't think they'll even achieve that at the current rate. But even on that basis, that's not going to be enough uh, to avoid uh, a problem, not only in the public sector debt, but in debt in general, Uh, because what's going to happen in order to compensate for that, is that companies uh, and others are going to borrow more, and the government will be forced to borrow more because it's not getting the revenues uh, as a result of uh, higher incomes that everybody is getting. Apart from the inequalities of uh, the taxation system, which is just ludicrously inequality. I mean, uh, the average uh, worker in the United States is paying something like on a total tax effective rate of all sorts of taxes, more than the top uh, 0.1% and 1%. I mean, that is just a ludicrously unequal and unfair way in which to raise revenue uh, such as it is at the moment. So it is a vicious circle. Uh, and- we need growth. Uh, I'm just, I just have to say this, hear the argument, we've got to lengthen uh, the day, the hour, the, sorry, the years required before you get your pension. And you've got to make more contributions each year. and You've got to have more years of contribution because we can't afford to pay decent pensions to people when they get old. This is absolutely nonsense. Just if you had a growth rate, not of three, 2% a year or 1% a year, but 3% a year, and you devoted that to increased tax revenues to the government. And they would easily be able to meet the pension requirements uh, that people have as they get older over the next uh, generation. But of course, US and other capitalist economies cannot grow at that level anymore. They're not achieving that. So we have to pay for that.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, in fact, you know, you rightly pointed out the inequality, of course, is is, is shameful. It's, it's morally repugnant, but it's also economically counterproductive because, you know, on the one hand, the Federal Reserve and other central banks like the Bank of England and so on keep worrying about the wage price spiral that's, you know, and keep blaming the current inflation on a surge of demand. But in reality, demand has been so weak that it has actually constrained investment. And by Keeping inequality high, you are keeping demand weak, you know, broad-based demand weak, and therefore you are going to actually, you're you're creating another obstacle to the productive revival of the economy. This is not uh, going to happen. So so inequality is also economically deeply counterproductive. So, yeah, and and I just wanted to add that, you know, essentially, uh, in terms of this question, I mean, basically... Uh, the U.S.'s fiscal wars are only going to increase. And as the U.S.'s fiscal wars increase, I would, you know, people forget, you know, the last time we had this debt ceiling drama uh, under President Obama, uh, once again, the a deal was reached and um, the, everything was fine. The government could borrow again, et cetera, et cetera, after a brief government shutdown. Fine. But nevertheless, even after the deal was reached, um, I think one of the big rating agencies, maybe SP or something, actually downgraded U.S. debt. I -hmm. think today we are facing an even worse set of circumstances and a similar type of downgrading, whether it takes place officially or just unofficially that, you know, essentially the rest of the, uh, you know, essentially markets do not want to purchase U.S. debt. Uh, There is going to be a a, 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 a further fiscal problems uh, baked into the present scenario. So Maybe now we can go to, uh, 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 you know, uh, unless you have anything to add, we can go to the next question, which is how does this impact the Federal Reserve and its remit to maintain uh, 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 financial stability, to contain inflation, and its its third remit, which is talked
1: about more than it's ever fulfilled, which is, of course, to keep levels of employment high. Well, one of the things that the Federal Reserve yeah. does to do is actually buy most of this government debt. We've seen over the last... Uh, 10 years or so, that the biggest buyer of government debt has been the Federal Reserve in order to keep uh, bond yields down, interest rates down, and make it easy for the government to uh, finance its uh, spending. Uh, because part of the reason for that is that uh, whereas foreign buyers of US government debt were about 25% of the total debt uh, purchases each year, have gradually reduced their share of buying debt. Their main a bias, were the Japanese and the Chinese, part of the reason is because they don't quite have so much money to reinvest into US Treasuries, but also they've been trying to diversify out of the dollar, They're, particularly China doesn't want to be uh, dependent on having all its assets in dollar assets, which could, we now know, be seized if, uh, if the US government feels that the Chinese has stepped out of line from its policies. So there's been a significant diversification going on amongst the countries that used to hold Uh, u.s government debt the federal reserve has driven interest rates down and bought a lot of that debt now as we go into the rest of this decade that's going to be much more difficult for the federal reserve to do because it's supposed to be tightening monetary policy and it's actually selling this debt back into the market uh, and to reduce its uh, balance sheet so we're seeing a reversal of the policy of the last 10 years as a result of the situation that they're in now in trying to control inflation so uh, the, U- the European Central Bank um, ha- isn't exactly in this dilemma. They want to uh, sell back a lot of the debt that they've built up over the last 10 years, particularly with countries that whose debt is not really very uh, uh, promising in terms of its returns, like Italy's and Greece's and other countries. But if they do that, they tighten the interest rates further and squeeze the Eurozone economy more. I heard President Lagarde say at a recent uh, press conference that um, It's not a trade-off. We can do both. Uh, Apparently, we can um, ensure that we can sell all this debt back into the market and we can uh, avoid inflation, get inflation down without having to raise interest rates too much. I don't see how that's possible. And only this week she said that there's no alternative but we'll have to continue hiking. So uh, they're in a, a dilemma here now, the central banks, for the first time. The foreigners aren't around to help them out. And the governments are facing significant debt issues, fiscal issues. And yet they also have to control inflation. So it's a dilemma that we haven't seen in in the previous two decades.
0: Absolutely. I think the Federal Reserve's ability to perform any of its major functions is going to be radically reduced. Uh, So it's not going to be able to tackle inflation. Now, of course, the most fundamental reason it's not going to be able to tackle inflation is actually... Uh, unless you think that it's a good idea to tackle inflation by creating a recession, yes. actually, the Federal Reserve has no way of controlling no inflation. Way. The Federal no. Reserve should essentially keep uh, managing money reasonably prudently. But the point of tackling inflation is to actually expand productive capacity, which is the function of government and not of the central bank. Yes. But let's just leave it leave that aside. In <clears throat> But nevertheless, and and of course, everything the Federal Reserve has done, whether to tackle inflation or to keep employment levels high, has actually been primarily about uh, about aiding the financialization of the us economy aiding mm-hmm. asset markets when in- interest rates are low or simply giving people extremely lucrative assets when interest rates are high one way or the other financialization has occurred whether in the 80s and 90s when interest rates were relatively high or in the 2000s and 2010s when they were relatively low but and and, and nevertheless the in the process of the last two decades of low interest rates the federal Reserve has jacked up a $9 trillion balance sheet uh, by buying all sorts of assets, including, as you rightly pointed out, U.S. Treasuries. The U.S. Federal Reserve is one of the chief buyers of the U.S. Treasuries, chiefly because the rest of the world, rest of the markets do not want Treasuries in the volumes in which they are being emitted by the Federal Reserve, by the U.S. government so the federal reserve has to aid the u.s government by buying otherwise the prices of treasuries will drop even further and the cost the u.s will have to pay for borrowing will rise even further so as you and also as you rightly say the federal government was engaged in a certain amount of what's called quantitative tightening withdrawing liquidity from the markets whereas in the two last two decades it had been pouring liquidity into markets but this had only gone to financial institutions and aided their speculative activity. It had not gone to real investment in the real economy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So now, this uh, a new issuance of of uh, Federal Reserve that is going to, in fact, um, uh, the issuance itself is going to be the opposite. It was going to be more quantitative easing in the sense that they are going to be yes. set, uh, 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 more uh, bonds. But on the other hand. Of course, rising interest rates are going to actually have a, a, the effect of a certain amount of tightening. But none of these processes are under the control of the Federal Reserve. Okay. Meanwhile, and this is my final point on, on this matter its ability to maintain financial stability is going down the tube because the big reform that was made after 2008 and the reforms after 2008 were very weak but one of the ones that seemed to be functioning was to require uh, uh, banks to hold greater reserves and a large part of these reserves were constituted by U.S. government debt. But now that debt is falling in value. And that means that the reserves of banks will be increasingly found to be inadequate. And we are bound to witness new episodes of what we saw in March and April this year. So the ability of the Federal Reserve to guarantee financial stability is going to be even weaker. Well, one of the ironies
1: of the recent banking crisis was that the Silicon Valley Bank Uh, had all these depositors who were able to take their money out by the press of a button. As we know, we can do that by the internet now. Um, But So they thought we'd better be safe about this. So we'll we'll invest in government bonds so that we are safe. And we've got government bonds, which uh, how can bonds not be safe? So they put a lot of money into long-term government bonds. But of course, as you point out, with a huge rise in interest rates, the value of those bonds uh, for those you that don't understand, but then the bond prices fall when the uh, interest rates rise. So the value of the bonds that they were holding dramatically fell. So when they had to try and sell to cover a bank run by uh, customers, they couldn't cover those uh, deposits because the value of those assets have fallen. And currently, according to the uh, Federal De- Deposit Insurance Corporation, it's something like $700 billion, uh, in, as it were, in the red, all the banks in the U.S. Uh, because of their assets in uh, government bonds, so, and that situation is going to get worse. Uh, it's not going to get better. So, if there's any worry on the part of customers about st- keeping their deposits in various banks, we could see further runs. It's no surprising that it's J.P. Morgan that's benefiting from all this. They've made a they swallowed up these small banks they can uh, appear to be have lots of deposits which they can sustain and they're fleecing actually their customers by not paying them decent deposit rates and they're swallowing up the small banks so what we're seeing is the result of this uh, if you like the debt crisis f- in fiscally is gone into the banking sector and is now squeezing and concentrating the banking sector into an ever smaller number of multi-large banks uh, what could be a better case for public ownership of the banks when they're We can see how clearly it's just a small number that control the financial sector we have. I mean,
0: that's, again, that that sort of makes me think that's another whole episode that we could do, another another show that we could do on exactly what's happened. Because, of course, every major financial crisis has led to the failures of many banks and therefore the increasing concentration of the banking system. So in 2008, of course, as a result of the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, which had maintained this sort of firewall between yeah. investment banking and the commercial banking, essentially, once this firewall was eliminated, the big commercial banks, which, are, which have vast quantities of deposits and therefore vast quantities of money to throw into trading, they essentially wiped out the smaller investment banks and now we have uh, essentially and then created a financial structure in the United States in which these exceedingly large banks uh, were essentially licensed because they were covered by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. They were licensed to engage in uh, 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 speculation, and uh, 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 and 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 guaranteed, uh, uh, and and essentially assured that any uh, 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 losses incurred due to this speculation would be covered, or any disasters would be covered by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which, mm-hmm. as you saw more recently, has also been now been extended in certain cases to cover uh, uh, deposits higher than the limit. That was $250,000 limit, which is already quite high. But anyway, an, uh, a topic of concentration of the banking system and the case for public utility banking. I think we should we should probably definitely put it down on our list it's, of
1: topics. It's a revolving door, too, that people who work for J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs end up in the administration or in governments of other countries. For example, the Turkish government has now got a finance minister who is in Goldman Sachs. Yes. And... Uh, the central bank governor is the person who used to be at First Republic Bank, the one of the banks that's gone down in the U.S. It's a revolving door. These people are either in government or in uh, in banking and vice versa. And the whole thing is totally interconnected. You know, I just wanted to mention
0: before we move on to the next question. I read in uh, 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 you know in the Hill, the, the congressional newspaper, uh, a rather right-wing person called Armstrong Armstrong Williams, writing that essentially now that the Federal Reserve is sitting on all these treasuries which have declined in value, that the Federal Reserve itself has become insolvent. Yeah. Of course, it's meaningless to say that the central bank is insolvent, but nevertheless, it is interesting that there is a lot of critique of the Federal Reserve out there, but because so much of it comes from a certain right-wing way of thinking, the critique never amounts to what it should really amount to, which is that the Federal Reserve should be essentially run as a public utility. It should be politically controlled because... Independent central bank just means a central bank that's captive of financial interests. So uh, uh, so you know, all these things are completely erased, and we we talk
1: about... The right, well, the right wing say that, because their alternative is to close the central bank down and just yes. have a free market of banks to issue whatever they like. Uh, they believe that the idea of a central bank means socialism in the state, uh, and we need to wipe out these organisations and let the free market rule in the financial sector. Just imagine, viewers, what that would mean uh, if you were to implement that as a solution to the problem that central banks are now facing.
0: Well, I mean, essentially, central banks, even though they have not performed this very well, the central bank, you know, without a central bank, you wouldn't have a substantial productive economy because that's what, uh, you know, levels of employment, levels of investment, et cetera, would plummet, essentially, which maybe brings us to our, our next question, which is how... How can we assess, how do you assess, Michael, the effect of this deal on the economy? We've sort of covered a bit of this already, but maybe you might want to say uh, uh, something about that.
1: Well, I think one of the things I'd like to say at this point is we've discussed the public sector, public sector budgets and debt. But remember that two thirds of debt is not in the public sector. It's in the private sector. And one of the big Issues that we uh, people ignore because every the paper talks about oh, the government's running a deficit. Oh, the government's borrowing too much money. But we never talk about the huge debt that's been built up in the corporate sector, particularly amongst small companies, many of whom are so drowned in debt they make no profit. They're just crawling along. We call them zombie companies because they don't make a profit, hardly can service their debt and yet they, they, you could say they clog the capitalist system up because they don't are not productive. They hold back, uh, block the way forward for more uh, energetic companies, you might argue. That's one argument. But also a huge amount of uh, debt means that government, these, gov- these companies are in danger of going bust. I mean, we're seeing a, a sharp increase in bankruptcies both in Europe and the U.S., over the last uh, 12 months. It's still nowhere near where it was in 2008-9 when we saw the banking financial crash, but uh, it's an indication that people should be aware that higher interest rates also damage what we might call the real economy, or at least the economy which is supposedly producing the things and services that we need and the jobs that people have, Uh, and not talking about the banking sector or the government sector here. And that is a huge problem uh, where if you added up the total global debt, including the public sector and this, uh, the rest of it, the private sector debt, we're talking about something like uh, uh, 250 to 300% of GDP in most of the advanced uh, economies, which is just about huge. 50 to 60% higher than it was 10 years ago. That's a tremendous deadweight upon the ability of, an, of the capitalist economy to produce things that we and services that we need it's a, it's driving down productivity it's also keep making sure that profitability doesn't rise our like profitability has been declining and it makes it raises a f- real frailties as you pointed out radika in the financial system itself because if a whole layer of companies go bust banks are going to be in deep trouble because they've been lending uh, to these people and what's called non-performing loans will be rocketing and banks will start will go under not only are they losing money on the assets that they've taken on, but they also could lose money on the loans that they've uh, handed out to this layer of companies. So I, don't, I think the impact of debt in general, which we've seen build up dramatically in the last 10 years in particular, but even longer than that, is an indication of how poor and how weak the capitalist economy is now in progressing uh, uh, the things that we need and the services that we require, not just in the big countries, but even worse, Uh, for the uh, poor countries of the world where debt is leading to outright defaults and the collapse of the of the economy entirely
0: no and you know i just want to add uh, one more point you know this is so true and you know debt debt can actually be very productive you know you can have uh, banks uh, that are lending to uh, companies that are engaging in long-term investment creating jobs expanding productive capacity improving the quality of them and, and quantity of Economic production, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but the kind of debt that we've had over the last couple many decades has been on the of the absolutely opposite type. Because, first of all, as far as working people are concerned, instead of uh, pay, the, our economies have been run in such a way as to uh, as to. Um, put downward pressure on wages uh, either keep them stagnant or even declining in real terms and therefore their debt in that case has been a replacement for income and you can never really sustainably replace debt uh, in uh, debt uh, replace income with debt And as far as companies are concerned, essentially, debt has been used in a way that they have people, these kind of economic raiders have essentially bought up companies, laden them down with debt, not in order to expand their productive capacity, but essentially to extract as much uh, 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 money out of them as possible and 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 and, and they have uh, uh, essentially constrained these e- uh, uh, companies from expanding in any way. and of course with the, those levels of debt, of course they are zombie companies because they mm-hmm. can barely produce enough to service the debt. So the whole nature of the debt
1: has been the big issue yep. as well. you know It's not productive debt anymore if in exactly. that sense. Uh, it's speculative debt as far as the banks and the financial institutions are. And it's a complete dead weight for a whole layer of particularly smaller companies not just small ones now we're beginning to see in the latest data uh, across the board over the last 10 years it's a real indication of how unproductive capitalism has become uh and the, the solution for capitalism keeping going is to keep po- pumping in more debt both into the private and and if there's a crash for the public sector to pick up the bill uh, and then then the government has to expand that and increase our taxes and reduce our government spending accordingly. This is a process which has been going on for the last two decades in particular, and it's worse. It's going to be worse this decade. Exactly.
0: So overall, I think, Michael, what we are ending up saying about the economy is essentially that the the, the debt, the debt deal and and, the, uh, and and what we can expect going forward is actually only going to make things worse. It's going to make uh, a productive investment that much more difficult in a high interest rate environment. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, governments will continue borrowing in order to finance, particularly the military industrial complex and all sorts of other inputs into the economy, which might help economically are going to be curtailed. So we're not looking at a good scenario at all. Uh, if we go to our uh, penultimate question, what do we think is going to happen? What is, the, is that? Is debt this debt deal, and what it generally indicates is
1: going to do to the American financial system? Well, um, I think we've discussed the, the problems that the banks have got. You might want to look at it internationally because I think uh, we could say, as this is a geopolitical uh, discussion in a way, that it it, te- it it adds to the likelihood that the U.S. dollar is losing its. Hegemony, its position of strength in the world economy, uh, as we as the debt builds up in the U.S., as uh, the U.S. economy doesn't grow anywhere near as fast enough in order to fund a lot of the things it wants to do in con- to control and police the world, that the dollar is going to suffer. Also, we're beginning to see a number of countries that are prepared to go along with the uh, the former, if you like, Bretton Woods Washington consensus of controlling everything through the U.S. dollar, looking for alternatives, uh, the, the U.S. dollar is beginning to lose its strength in the world, or its dominant strength. I'm not saying it's disappeared. Clearly it hasn't because uh, trade is still, a uh, huge amount of trade is still in the dollar, huge amount of financial activity and capital flows is in the dollar, and uh, reserves are still so much in the dollar so that it's still the international reserve currency. But that situation is changing. And yes. that's beginning to deteriorate. And over the rest of this decade, I think we'll see a significant change if we look at the data, the share that US dollar has in reserves has declined from around about 60% to 55 or 54 depending on what you put in that. And it's going to go further down. So we could be in a position, I think, as we get to the end of this decade, that less than half of all international reserves held by governments, that is to maintain their Current account and their capital flows will be less than half will be in dollars. And that is a a change, a big change, which is the result of the inability of the US economy to grow without expanding its debt, both private and public
0: no i i think that that's that's a really great great points and we've actually also segwayed into our final question which is also you know what will this do to uh, uh, uh the, the the dollar system and so on and that that's perfectly fine so let me just add a couple of points i mean you know as far as the financial system is concerned we've already said that of course the declining value of American treasury securities of various maturities is going to impact the uh, resilience of the banking system. And we are going to see more bank failures in the, in the coming. Uh, in uh, Very likely, this will be uh, contributing to more bank failures. So, uh, And at the same time, I think inflation is probably going to remain stubborn because we have not yes. solved the underlying problems uh, domestically. And internationally, everything the United States is doing is only going to increase. So are in only going to increase the difficulty of accessing products that are sufficiently cheap that they help with inflation whether they are commodities or manufactured products or what have you so in that sense i think that inflation will remain stubborn which then means that the federal reserve pursuing as it does this policy where you know you have to increase interest rates to tackle inflation it's going to keep inflation higher for longer which will as we've noted in previous uh, uh, a number of previous programs um, which is going to essentially uh, 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 exacerbate the dilemma of preserving financial stability or preserving monetary stability these two have been pitted against one another since the beginning of this current episode of inflation and they will the the the, the dilemma will only get more acute and then as far as the u.s uh, uh, dollar system is concerned the the u.s dollar system really the one of the but the bedrock of the US dollar system is a robust market for US treasuries and as we've noted already the market for US treasuries has been troubled for a long time now. Uh, the attractiveness of US treasuries is declining so as a consequence the market is becoming as they say less liquid that is to say the volumes that are traded every day have been going down quite consistently and this matters because if the volume is very high then there is no problem for those who wish to buy Treasuries. treasury And no problem for those who wish to sell them. Uh, But with the volumes going down, it's actually going to be more difficult to be able to sell treasuries. It's also... um, Uh, 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 domestic and foreign buyers are both have each their own reason for not being particularly enthusiastic about buying treasuries. And if they do buy them, they will demand higher interest rates, which then further compounds the problems uh, because it will lead to an even greater issuance of treasuries in order to meet the interest payments. So that you can see that the United States is uh, going to, and the United States dollar is going, going as a consequence to have a really tough time. Um, the Federal Reserve is already one of the biggest buyers of treasuries. And if anything, if this trend continues, it will have to become uh, the main buyer, raising a very serious question about whether US debt is uh, uh, re- really can be called, uh, um, you know, a sort of a debt generated by markets, you know, if there is a such a big buyer, your own central bank is buying the debt. So yeah, and this may also affect the ratings, as we've already said. So Michael, any last thoughts perhaps
1: no i all well, i would i think the, this, the discussion we've had has demonstrated i hope uh, to those who have been who watch this that um when we look at the question of the debt ceiling which is where we started we can see that's just a small piece of the general puzzle of global debt particularly u.s debt both public and private but also globally and how the rising level of interest rates that we've seen over the recent period supposedly to control inflation. Uh, You and I know that it doesn't do any such thing, but that is the aim of it in order to keep wages down and also to keep profits up is what's really behind it, is actually creating a problem, not only uh, in financing this debt and servicing this debt over the next period in the US and elsewhere, but also causing terrible damage to the government finances of the poorer countries of the world who have so much dollar debt. And, some, and they're seeing sharp interest rate rises. So viewers should bear in mind that when we talk about the debt ceiling in the US, this is just a small part of the disaster that's going on for debt in many poor countries of the world, in Egypt, in Pakistan, in Ghana, in Sri Lanka, uh, a whole range of other ones too, that are, are, are facing basically meltdown in terms of their government finances and their ability to help the uh, impoverished populations that they do have.
0: No, that's that's really a, a a great note to end on. And maybe I'll just add that, you know, this also puts in question this whole idea that, you know, somehow the United States has the exorbitant privilege of borrowing Cheaply from the world, the United States is not borrowing cheaply at all, and I think this also puts another nail in the coffin of the idea of dollar hegemony, etc. But there are so many more things to discuss, Michael. And I hope that we'll have you back. I should say to our viewers that this uh, uh, installment, this 11th geopolitical economy hour, is a bit late because I've been traveling, and Michael Hudson, who is also often joins us, is uh, has been uh, busy with other things. But hopefully, Michael Roberts, we will have you back perhaps with Michael, without Michael Hudson, without. But it, it's wonderful that we've already touched on three or four uh, further things that we could uh, f- uh, profitably discuss uh, in a geopolitical economy hour. So thank you very much for joining uh, joining me today and uh, looking forward to having you back.
1: Thank you, Radhika. It's been great.
0: Thank you. Bye.